Uh, we continue the journey through chapter 3, uh, and we find ourselves now back in the countryside. Uh, this time, though, as we move out into uh, the region outside of Jerusalem, and obviously moving up north uh, where John the Baptist is located, we're in the middle of a significant transition. It is a move from John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, the last of the old covenant prophets, to Jesus, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, the mediator of the new covenant. It is a move from the old into the new. And, and though some transitions can be awkward or even hard, this one begins with Jesus preaching repentance at the river, preaching a message that would have aligned very closely with what John the Baptist has been speaking. And it closes with John the Baptist preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ at the springs. And so the transition from old to new covenant begins with a look at Jesus and John's concurrent ministries. In verses 22 and 20 through 24, we kind of see this. It says, After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon near to Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison." Now, when you read that, sometimes you think they're together, but they're actually in two separate regions. Uh, Jesus has been in Judea. He was in Jerusalem and always done, and I always just use it how I look at a map down, uh, going right on the map. If he's in Jerusalem, he went right across the Jordan. He's ministering still in that southern portion. Uh, John is ministering further north. He is in Samaria across the Jordan. Uh, the word Anon in Greek means springs, and so uh, there's a couple different locations that people think he was, both of which are in Samaria, both of which have multiple springs or a lot of water. And we're given some context there because John is not yet in prison. And, and I'll talk about it a little bit later on, but this portion of John's life, this transition period, these messages that they're preaching uh, is only recorded in John. If you look at the other Gospels, we go from Christ's temptation right to John being in prison. So this takes place in that middle portion that is there. And what we've seen is that Jesus is, is moved out of the city of Jerusalem. Now, the wording in Greek tells us that several months have transpired since the events in Jerusalem. And Jesus has moved into the countryside for a very specific reason. And the first is that he wants to spend time with his disciples. It says, there he tarried with them. And the, the Greek implies that there's a duration of time. And so through usage, you kind of see he, he tarried with them or he stayed with them, he spent time with them, is always used for at least a few months of time. And, and we realize that we're coming out of a very public time with Jesus. His, his ministry kicks off in the countryside where he's talking and, and, and engaging with John. John is pointing him out. And then he moves to Canaan where he does his first miracle, and then he ends up at the Passover. And at the Passover is where we encounter him making a very poignant point at the start of his ministry. He's going to clean the temple twice. This is at the beginning. And so he, he runs all the money changers, all the, the animal and livestock out of the temple. And then that's followed by miracles being done during the Feast of Tabernacles. And so if you study through the Old Testament, there are core times in the yearly calendar of Israel where Israelites were supposed to come gather at the temple or at the tabernacle. And this was a critical one. This is the Passover. 
And this is going to be right after the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles is, is one of the feasts that we had the most thanksgiving and joy. We're studying numbers on Wednesday night. And last week I mentioned that the Feast of Tabernacles in some other ancient Israel uh, or Jewish writings, you read that you, they say you haven't experienced joy unless you've experienced the joy of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a pinnacle of their year of thanksgiving. And so during that time, during Passover, celebrating the exodus out of Egypt and Christ's redemption, then we also come with this feast that lasts a week that is high on the joy of thanksgiving. Uh, you might even say fun calendar. And during that time, uh, Jesus has done miracles enough miracles amongst the people that he's caught the eye of all the people, but he's also caught the eye of the leadership in Jerusalem. Because this is the time when Nicodemus comes, and we just went through uh, that portion of chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He is one of the elite teachers. He is high up in the Sanhedrin. He's one of the core leaders, and it is during or an offshoot from the Feast of Tabernacles and all the signs that Nicodemus comes to him and says, hey, you got to be sent from God. No one can do these signs unless they're sent from God. And that's those signs that he did right after Passover, right after cleaning the temple. And here we have that in-depth conversation, that crucial conversation with Nicodemus about the new birth, about salvation, where Jesus exposes the erroneous views that most in leadership had concerning new birth or repentance. He confronted Nicodemus. Actually, Nicodemus was already confronted. That's why he's talking to Christ saying, hey, you must be from God, but we really don't like what you're saying because you're telling us that we're not special, that we're not already in the kingdom, that we need to repent. And so he's in a conflict and Christ shares clearly, you're right. You must be born again. You must have the new birth. You're not in by connection to Israel. You're not in by genetic code. You're not in by the fact that your father is Abraham. You must be born again. And so Christ now steps away. What is the main thing? He's stepping away from the city and he's going remote to invest more specifically in the disciples. And so we come to a time of focused discipleship. There are fewer distractions. Now, it doesn't mean there are not a lot of people coming out to see him, but the environment is different because we're going to see a lot of people moving out. They're being baptized. But it's done so the disciples can begin learning the lessons from what has been accomplished and said in Jerusalem. Just pause for a moment and think about the questions his conversation with Nicodemus would have prompted. If you are a disciple and you're hearing that the elite teacher in Israel needs to be born again, that there's nothing special about him, that he is depraved as a Gentile, as a pagan, then you know in and of yourself you need the same salvation. You need the same redemption. And so everything you may have known for your whole life that you had a misconception about is being confronted. And they need time to talk, and they have it. But this is no exclusive retreat. This was not just a hangout in the countryside where people are serving you and you're walking around. Jesus was taking that focused time with his disciples, but he also was engaged in preaching repentance. And that, that reality is conveyed by the words, and baptized. When Jesus was baptizing, and actually Jesus never baptized, he had his disciples baptized. We learn that later on in John. But Jesus has now continued to preach repentance and is 
disciples baptized and which was a baptism of repentance. It, it followed exactly in line with what John has been preaching, where John calls out the leadership and says, you're a brood of vipers. Who, who warned you to come? And he says, everyone, and he was baptizing Jews. Remember, if you go back uh, to chapter one, the, the leadership has come out to John and said, what are you doing? You know, it was okay to baptize a pagan or a Gentile. They needed to change. They needed to signify that there's nothing about them. They needed to repent. But the Israelites had a hard time, especially the leadership, with them repenting. And so when it talks of him baptizing, he's, he's doing a baptism of repentance. This is different than Christian baptism. Christian baptism was instituted after his death and resurrection, and it pictures his death and resurrection. This replicates again what John has been doing and still is doing, because again, John is preaching north of Jesus. Their ministries are running hand in hand. And what John, the writer, the evangelist, is sharing is a time of concurrent ministry, is a time that sets up the transition from the new to old that he uniquely records. And as we get to the end of this, as I mentioned at the beginning, Jesus is preaching repentance just like John had been doing. And John is going to be confronted with some questions from his disciples. And he's actually going to not necessarily change his message, but he's going to move to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to move to the new covenant and preach what needs to be done. And we see this seamless transition, even though some of the disciples of John are going to struggle with it. We're going to see how there's a natural change that takes place. But we see at the same time a model of discipleship. We see Christ at the early part of his ministry taking focus, time, and energy and investing it into Christ followers, his disciples. And then we see a passion for preaching repentance. Though we see a transition from the old covenant to the promised new one, we also see that the emphasis of repentance and focus on God's kingdom remains the same. And so as we watch John give way to Christ, we see the, the, the remaining theme stay the same. Here is Christ preaching repentance, and there is John preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you line them all up, we see this core idea that we must repent and we must be born again, and we must be focused on God's kingdom. And so before we move to see what unfolds from this time of concurrent ministry, we do need to pause and ask ourselves, do we take time for discipleship? If we say we're Christ followers, that we are his ambassadors, that we're going to do what Christ does, that we must die, and, and John's going to talk about that. He must increase and I must decrease. If we're to respond or replicate Christ in this world, then as we see what he does here, we have to ask ourselves if we do the same thing. Do we take time as believers for discipleship? Do we pour into others? Do we help them grow in Christ? And then as a second question tied to this, do we continue to preach repentance? And I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm not talking about being uh, a jerk out there with what God's truth is, but I think as believers, we kind of start soft-selling what is really required, what God demands of us. We buy into what the world says too often. The world, as a general principle, thinks that people are generally good, and that's a lie. There's no one that's generally good. We are sinful and depraved and need to repent. 
And Christ is preaching that continual message of repentance. So are we making that reality clear to the world around us? And again, we're to do so in a loving way. We're to speak the truth in love. We're supposed to communicate that. But I hope it confronts us. And I was reading this first part of this passage. It hit me. And, and it's the question kind of formed in my mind, how engaged in, uh, am I individually in discipleship? Who am I focused in on? Who am I trying to take time with? And it doesn't mean it has to be formalized and it's, it's, it's on a calendar necessarily, but, but it should be a part of who we are as believers. We should always be discipling people. And then I wonder about my interactions with people. And again, I, I don't want to be obnoxious and I don't think uh, we, we share the grace of God well when we are being obnoxious, but how focused are we on repentance in those we encounter? How has the conversation moved to what they really need? Or do we spend too much time making sure they're okay how they feel about themselves, that they feel good about maybe not being a Christian but thinking they are? You see, we're given a responsibility, and Christ tells us uh, how we're to engage with the world around us? How do I engage with other believers? Well, I should have a mindset of discipleship. I should have the idea of how can I help them grow? How does iron sharpen iron? How do we, how do we draw closer to Christ in our lives? And then when I encounter the lost world, I never lose sight of the fact that they're depraved like I am, that they need Jesus Christ, that they must repent of their sin. They must put their faith and trust in him. How much of our time and energy is locked in on that? Is that our focus? Now, this time of concurrent ministry, similar locations, similar types of locations, and similar purpose have raised some potential difficulties. And you see that in verses 25 through 30. There are difficulties that do not materialize because John the Baptist clearly understood his ministry and his role However, there was a conflict in the minds of his followers prompted by a conversation with one of the Jewish factions. And here's where we go all the way back to where John was questioned originally. Uh, the Jews and mainly the Pharisees really zeroed in on this idea of purification, and they really were offended that John was giving a baptism of repentance and this idea of purification, of stating that they weren't clean and symbolizing that they would be clean, and they were bothered by that. And so they have not stopped questioning John. And so we launch off in 25. It says, Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And, and in this translation, it uses the plural. In most of the manuscripts, it is a singular. So the idea is John's disciples with a Jew at this time about the same question they've been bothered about since the beginning of the Gospel of John is this idea of purification, this idea of we shouldn't need this. Why are you baptizing? Why are you giving baptism or repentance to Jewish people? And it says then, it kind of switches the focus, and they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. You yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
And so to start with, we're having John's disciples dialoguing with the same argument they've had for a while. So this conversation starts with, hey, we don't like what your leader is doing. It becomes obvious, and it's not listed here, but in the process of that dialogue and that discussion, they mention something about Jesus Christ. They say, hey, wait a second, what's going on? He, he apparently highlights this too, what Jesus is doing further south. And if you track out of that, the Jews would have been based, the Pharisees in Jerusalem most of the time. He would have gone out, easily have gone through what Christ was doing. So imagine this, Christ leaves Jerusalem and many people follow him. When, when there are many people follow anybody in their culture, the current religious leaders are very curious about what's going on. So they send people out to go see what's taking place. No doubt he's seen what Christ is doing. He moves north up the river and now is confronting again John the Baptist's disciples and obviously mentions, hey, that guy Jesus is baptizing for repentance as well. And so it raised questions in their mind. Really what happens is they become offended for John. They see Jesus as competition. And so they return to John and they raise the alarm. They're jealous for him. They thought that Jesus should be honoring John and not taking followers from John. And they actually go to John and they say, look, the guy you pointed out and made popular, he's taking all the people. And that's hyperbole. It's not that everyone is with him because obviously John has his followers. But they're saying everyone's going to him. Everyone's shifting to this guy you pointed out. And they are upset for him. Because if you follow tradition, the one who is first should always have the preeminence. And so in their minds, John is first. He introduces Christ. And so Christ should always be under the ministry of John. John should always lead the charge. John immediately corrects that thinking. He reminds them that he, and by default, everyone must step aside for Christ. It is Jesus who is to be glorified, to be elevated, and we are to decrease. If you get nothing out of this message, if you're a believer, you have to hone in on what John the Baptist is trying to teach us. Because we way too often compete with Christ where we want the glory, where we want recognition, where we want authority, where we want power, and we are not applying what John is teaching very clearly. He must increase and I must decrease. You see, quickly, John aligned his followers. Leon Morris notes, there is a compelling divine necessity behind the expression, he must increase but I, and actually the word must is not in Greek, it's he must increase, but I decrease. And the must has a divine significance attached to it, that God must be elevated. And John makes that crystal clear to them. He let them know that he was just a man and that any ministry or purpose done or accomplished by him was a privilege given from God. We all need to pause there as we minister because we've all encountered, and I would probably say, been the suffering servant, haven't we? We have looked at what we do for Christ and say, look what I do for Christ. Look how I serve Jesus. Look what I do for him. I've done my time. I've done my quota. 
I've turned in what I'm supposed to do. How could God ask more from me? And John has just spun that mentality on its head. You don't have to, and you don't fulfill a quota, (coughs) but instead, you're privileged to do this. He says that he could do nothing on his own. It was always the ministry given him from heaven. And so he moves to this marriage illustration to make his purpose clear. Now, he began by reminding him that he was not the Messiah, but instead has always been the forerunner of the Messiah. I'm not the one who's there. And what he's telling him is this, it's foolish to compare me with the anointed one. He brings to bear that he and Jesus Christ are not equals. And I want you to understand something, you're not equal with Jesus Christ. You never will be, you never were. This is not a competition of two equals. This is not two teachers going at it, and he's conceding to the other teacher. He says, look, I'm the forerunner of the, of the anointed one from God, the one that's been promised for centuries, thousands and thousands of years. This is what we've been looking for. How ridiculous to compare me to him. We're not equals, nor is this a competition at all. And then he connects them to who Jesus is. He says, Jesus is the bridegroom, and I'm the friend. I'm the best man. And what John is saying, and he's tying into, and they would understand this from culture, is I'm the guy that arranges the details. In their culture, in a lot of the weddings, and it's hard to know if every wedding was like this, but a lot of weddings at that time, the friend, the, the best man, would go get the bride sometimes and bring her out of the house to the bridegroom. His job was to make sure they would connect. In ancient Mesopotamian law, and so this goes all the way back when you think of the, the story of Samson and how he has a wedding and then the dad gives his wife, his bride, to the best man. Uh, if they were following Mesopotamian law, that would have broken the, the law. Because if you follow that law, the best man is never allowed to marry the bride. Even if the husband, the bridegroom, abandons the woman, the best man is never for life allowed to marry the bride because he is fulfilling the role of best man and is never supposed to do that. And what he's trying to emphasize to them is, I've never been Jesus's rival. My role has always been forerunner. My role has always been the friend of the bridegroom. I've had my job, and my job is to bring the bride to Christ. And we'll look at that in the context of the Old Testament. Because then you move forward and say, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the king. And the king in the Old Testament days is often seen as married to the people And so if you watch John's illustration, which seems so simple, hey, I'm not the groom, I'm just the best man, well, it it carries a a high emphasis for all the people listening, because he's saying, one, I would never take the bride, I couldn't do that, my job's to bring the bride to Christ. And then in the context of Christ being king, who is the bride? He's speaking of that remnant, I'm going to bring the people, the bride, to the king of kings. And so he rejoiced to see the people following Jesus. He's just not conceding it like, hey, I guess that's how things go. He's saying, this has been my job from the beginning. And so when he says, my joy is fulfilled, this is why I came, so that people would go to him. John is making sure he's clear about his purpose. He is 
the friend bringing the bride to the groom. He was, as one writer remarks, bringing the faithful remnant of Israel to Christ, the culmination of his ministry as his forerunner. Bringing people to Jesus Christ. And now we're confronted with this idea of do we share John's purpose? And you think, well, how, how can I be? I'm not the forerunner of Christ. No, but are you accomplishing what he accomplished as the friend of the bridegroom? Do we strive to bring the bride to Christ, to be intricately involved in connecting people to their Lord and Savior? Because this is not John putting his hands up and saying, hey, I did my time, I'm checking out. This is John emphasizing to all believers what their role is, what their driving purpose is. He's saying, I've connected the people to the Savior. I've brought the bride into connection with the bridegroom. MacArthur notes this. He says, the measure of success for any ministry is not how many people follow the minister, but how many people follow Christ through the ministry. Let me expand that out individually. It's not how many people you can brag about or how many times you might have shared the gospel or how much you may have done or how much money you may have given or what you think you've accomplished. The question is, how many people follow Christ through the ministry? What is the driving purpose of the ministry? And it's never to elevate us. We are not anything, and I would say we're sheep bringing sheep to Christ. Sheep bringing sheep to the shepherd. So John has effectively diffused any potential difficulties. He's he's immediately confronted them. They're offended for him. And he says, don't you dare be offended for me. I'm offended that you're offended for me. I don't want you to do this. So he's diffused that completely. But he wants there to be no questions about the future kingdom and to whom that kingdom belongs. And so he continues his instruction of his disciples, zeroing in on some key properties, and I put key properties of the kingdom. Now, there's some discussion that takes place in chapter 3, because some commentators feel like that we just finished what John is saying, and that it's transitioning to what John the evangelist would write, John the apostle, Uh, but there is no change of subject. And and I think, and, and other commentators think as well, that we're now hearing the final main sermon from John. This is before he's thrown into prison. It doesn't mean that John is not going to struggle at times and have some doubts when he's in prison, but here is his message. After telling everyone, don't be offended for me. I'm doing what God's called me to do. What's unfolding is exactly what we want to see unfold. And then he moves to these key properties, or I would say his main sermon, 31 through 36. He says to them, he that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly. That's, he's talking about himself. He's talking about us. And speaketh of the earth, he that cometh from heaven is above all. And whenever scripture repeats itself, it's trying to make a point. And what John is trying to communicate to them is that Christ is nothing like us. He came as a man. He remained fully God. But he's trying to make sure they understand who he is and that he is far above him and by default us. And he says, and when he and what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. And that's a classic John the Evangelist 
way of wording things, it's always a, a contrast that comes out. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And right away when he closes it out, you already see what Jesus has said to Nicodemus repeated, yet John never heard Jesus say that to Nicodemus, and instead is preaching right now his sermon the gospel of Jesus Christ, the need of new birth, the need to believe in Jesus for forgiveness of sins. And it's his, uh, John the Baptist's last recorded sermon in this gospel, and it's one that clearly describes what the kingdom of God really is and to whom all glory belongs. It is given to compel his followers to understand salvation, to see Christ correctly, to respond in true faith. If you go forward into the epistles, Paul's actually going to encounter some uh, stalwart disciples of John, unsaved, and he has to explain to them fully Jesus Christ, and they become believers. Here is John at the, at, in his live ministry, so that'd be years, decades later that Paul's encountering him, and he's telling his followers, put your trust in Jesus Christ. Respond in true faith. And so he wants them to understand some things about Jesus, and first and foremost, he wants them to understand the absolute preeminence of Jesus. And that's why he repeats himself. He is above all. Jesus came from heaven and deserves the only place of being uniquely first. And that's a lot of words to say something because when we talk about being first, you go all the way back to being first in line, right? If you're first in line, you're the head of a, of a group of people that are your peers. And, and John doesn't want them to think of Jesus as a peer. They want them to understand that, that Jesus is God, that he's preeminent. And so he uses words to tell them that he's not the head of the line, but he's far beyond any lineup that we would have at all. He is first, and there is no second. He's only, is what he's saying. And John the Baptist, as he speaks for himself, he's saying, on the other hand, I'm from the earth, and I am not to be compared with the preeminent Savior. You're from the earth, and you're not compared to the preeminent Savior. He then turns to what Jesus has been saying. He ties into where these people are offended. He's preaching, and he's baptizing. What's going on? He's in conflict with you. And he turns to what Jesus says, the message that Jesus carries, and he makes clear the absolute truth of Jesus. Jesus is speaking the words of heaven. He's not uttering things that he's learned but instead uttering the things of eternity, the things that he has brought into existence. He's not saying truth, only he is truth and can only communicate truth. Sadly, humanity rejects the words that embody truth, that define truth. What is the, the natural response of humanity? We want nothing to do with truth. We reject truth. We're against truth. And John the Baptist is warning his followers not to miss the words of truth, not to be among those who reject truth. But there are those who do believe, those that hath received his testimony. And they get this seal, right? He referenced this idea of a seal, a seal that affirms that Jesus is speaking only God's truth. And a seal was important. We understand the, the idea of that letter is sealed and it's locked in. It's, it's put someone's stamp of approval 
It goes beyond that in ancient culture. A lot more people were illiterate. They needed the seal to know that something was authoritative or authenticated. And so John literally says, but those who do believe, they, they affirm, they set their seal. They, they say that Jesus Christ is truth. They put their backing behind it. Not that God needs our backing, but that's exactly what a believer is doing. Unlike humans today who can and too often veer from God's truth, everything said by Jesus aligns with God's word. Because when he speaks, it is God speaking. And that's where John is leading us. John the Baptist is taking, saying, he's preeminent. He's the only one. He's unique. He's the first in a line that only has a first. And then he goes on, he says, he speaks absolute truth because he is truth. He is God speaking truth. And the last part of 34 states that clearly, making sure all recognize the absolute divinity of Jesus. For God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. And that, that phrase communicates something to us because Jesus, unlike any prophet before him, Unlike even John the Baptist, which, by the way, John the Baptist was not confused about what Christ had called him to do. He understood what it meant to have the Spirit. He understood exactly what he was doing, and he's making sure they understand we as humans, in some way or form, have something of the Holy Spirit, but Christ has no limit on the Holy Spirit in his life. He has it all. Paul writes in Colossians 2.9, he says, For in him, speaking of Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so we get a picture of the triune God in that statement, and John has already said it, where I have the Spirit in me as a human, and I'm working and serving, serving God's purpose, Jesus Christ has the Spirit in full, and Paul words that he, he embodies the fullness of the Godhead. That's the three in one. In other words, there's nothing missing in Christ. He is completely God to the fullest context. Jesus, what John is saying to his followers, is fully God. And he's making sure they understand that they should not have missed that. He's fully God, and you should have known that. And he reminds them, I've been teaching you one thing. I'm pointing to the Messiah, who's God coming to earth to redeem us. And since Jesus is obviously fully God, then there is no excuse for missing the absolute authority of Jesus. Verses 35 through 36, it says, uh, says, The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And oftentimes we, we jump to verse 36 and miss the implication of the all in verse 35. See, they're offended. John the Baptist's disciples were offended that Jesus was leading, that he had not tied himself with John. And so John corrected them directly and clearly. Jesus has the world in his hands, and he can do with it as he pleases. We struggle with that because we're part of that world in his hands. And we don't like, as humans, because we want to take the place of God, we don't like the idea that he can do what he pleases. And we want him to do what he pleases because he's God and he's always fair and he's always just. Hebrews 1.3 says clearly that Jesus is upholding all things by the word of his power. This world spins today on its axis through the holding power 
of Jesus Christ. Nothing, and this is what John is trying to communicate to them, you're offended that more people are going to listen to him. And he says, nothing is outside of Jesus's realm. Nothing is outside of his kingdom. It is all his. The Father has given all things. When Scripture says that, it says it on purpose. There's nothing excluded. And so as you sit there today, you are not excluded. You are part of the all things. You cannot escape the purpose of Jesus Christ. And so John closes his sermon now with a clear picture of humanity. It's a clear presentation of the gospel that aligns perfectly with what Jesus taught Nicodemus. How does he end? You believe on Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. And the way the wording is, is you have eternal life now. It's yours now that we'll understand the full benefit of eternal life after we die is true. But as a believer, you have now currently the benefit of eternal life. And the opposite, though, is true. That if you don't have eternal life, if you don't have Christ, then you have God's wrath right now upon you. And so he drives his followers to seek Jesus, to be born again, to have everlasting life. Jesus is the absolute preeminent one, the absolute embodiment of truth. He is absolute divinity, God with us, and the one with absolute authority over all things. So John says to his followers, believe on him, not in me. Don't put your faith in me. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and you will have everlasting life now. But if you don't, you are dead, living now under the wrath of God. And I said as a closing statement, and I usually have a question, but I don't have one here. There's only one who can be preeminent, one who is the truth, one who is God on earth, one who has the authority. No matter what or how you think otherwise, no matter what difference of opinion you have in your brain that crops up, seed of doubt, whatever takes place, there is only one. And I want to quote John MacArthur in bringing this whole portion to a close from the Gospel of John. He says this, the weight of John's witness can still be felt today. And I think we can attest to that. He speaks very clearly to what we need to believe in, what our focus needs to be, what our priority needs to be, how we need to decrease and make sure Christ is elevated. The weight of John's witness can still be felt today as a warning to unbelievers that they must repent and follow Christ. There's nothing else but to repent and follow Christ. And as an example to believers that they should seek the Savior's glory rather than their own. 